You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Susan Hudson with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am here today with my friends, Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. <laughs> Sounded like a cat meowing. <laughs> I'll have to work on that. <laughs> we also have the pleasure of one of my dear friends, Sharna Caceres. Um, who is an attorney who specializes in gestational carriers and adoption. Um, So she's going to join us today and give us some perspective. But Carrie, I understand you had a flying insect incident the other night. (laughs) So so yeah, so a couple of my friends came over and we are social distancing. So we were all sitting on the patio and they're at one end of the the patio table and my husband and I are at the other. And the, the porch light was behind me. And so I'm telling some whatever story and all of a sudden, all three of their attentions rivet to the light behind me (laughs) and I turn around expecting to see like alien looming over me dun 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 and of course it's of course it's a moth flying around and they're all like yeah we weren't sure with the way that it looked in this particular angle we wanted to make sure it wasn't a scorpion that was crawling on the wall and we're like okay fine whatever we have some huge moths I can tell you like we have some that I would say are like four or five times as big as a butterfly flying around. Uh-huh. Those aren't the normal ones, but we do have some of those. Um, but oh, I hate the mosquitoes. Those are my least favorite. What do you think? Cockroaches? Ooh, yeah. I don't like those either. I just those, are big. About those. <laughs> those are big in Texas, aren't they? You guys have humongous cockroaches. There were big ones when I lived in Florida, but I think Texas beats it. Well, but they're, I think they're more like, I, I think roaches, I, I think of them more being like coastal. I, I don't, I don't know. I'm probably in my little buffered world nowadays, but um, like I definitely, my experience with roaches is more traveling to coastal regions than like local central Texas type of thing. Well, you know, as we were talking about this bug story with Carrie, I just happened to drop in that I'm working on this sort of community service project. We're trying to refurbish a a sort of a learning garden garden area. And my job is to do some research about bug hotels. And I really knew, didn't know that there were, that that, that such things existed. refurbishing a bug hotel. Well, it's it's sort of like an ecology park, like there's going to be birdhouses and there's going to be like worms in the garden and plants and you want good bugs. So you have to have a bug hotel if you want good bugs. Do you have to meet any of the inhabitants of this bug hotel? So, well, so you don't have to meet the inhabitants, but actually we're going to also have a little home for bees too, because you want, you want bees to nest because you need bees to pollinate the flowers. And so bugs really like, um, like, you know, sticks and logs. And depending on the size of the hole that you like, because if you have like cross sections of a log, you dig different size holes or, or drill different size holes and different size bugs will go in there. So you want all kinds of bugs, big and little, great and small. Is there a vacancy sign that you put out front? <laughs> yeah, you put a vacancy <laughs> sign out front and you welcome them all in. I'm having this imagination of the Beetlejuice, like, vacancy <laughs> flashing light is like going through my head right hey, now. Actually, you know, we're going to paint like the, the area, like the sort of the board that these bug hotels are going to hang on. So I think I'm going to put that up. Actually, I think I'll put vacancy up there. That's a great idea. 
<laughs> you need to get a small little neon vacancy sign and flash it because they might like the lights. Yeah, actually. Like, think about the moth. They might go go to the light. She's from Vegas. <laughs> she knows about the lights. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. That's that's People go towards flashy lights in hotels. And so... Could you put me in touch with somebody that like in Vegas that makes those flashy lights? Maybe they can make a little tiny itty bitty version for like a bee, <laughs> like a bee hotel or a brooch hotel. I'll do you one better. I will send you the brochure to the neon sign museum which is where oh. all of the vegas signs go to die oh. which is where all the old neon signs are from the city it's really a phenomenal museum but maybe you can get some inspiration and use your artistry yeah to... i like that idea if i could figure out how to do that i think that would be lovely i think that would just add some whimsy to the garden don't you think turn it turn it like a light bright like drill the holes <laughs> in and put little christmas yeah. lights through yeah, the holes absolutely yeah and turn them onto the flashy phase I like that. I like that. It's going to be the fanciest bug hotel in the entirety of Tennessee. That's right. Five stars. (laughs) Five stars. Absolutely. (laughs) Without a doubt. (laughs) So for our Ask the Doc segment today, we're going to do things a little bit different because Sharna has some questions she's just been dying to ask us. And so we're going to actually give her the mic and be able to take over and ask the questions that have been probing her little mind. I think this is a little scary. Who knows what she's going to ask us, guys? I think this is amazing because based on the tiny little taste of this that she gave us beforehand, I am not the only one who thinks these types of things. So, Sharna, you need to know that I am usually the one who has kind of the off-the-wall tangents. That is true. And, <laughs> Absolutely. and the questions you were asking, I, like these are the things that go through my mind, too. I feel kind of bad. Maybe you'll have me on for a repeat so I can get some more questions from the audience. That'd be great. Yeah, totally. Get up close and personal. I mean, you've seen all of our parts. Now we get to... To know what's in your mind. <laughs> no, it's in our parts, just our brain. <laughs> so what, you, what were the questions? So my first question is, when you go to the doctor, do you fold up your clothes and put your underwear inside? And like, you have to wear your best underwear, but you still hide them. Do you do this? I'll answer that question. I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of one of those people that unfortunately I'm kind of a perfectionist and I actually do that. I actually roll my underwear up. Not that I care that anybody else does it, but I, you know, I want to make sure my underwear looks good. You know, I'm, I'm just that way. <laughs> Carrie, I'm dying to know what your answer is. <laughs> Susan, what's your answer? Um, I don't necessarily roll everything as neatly as Carrie is, but I definitely hide my bra and panties. So I shove my bra and panties in my purse. I lightly drape my clothes over them. And then I dive for the gown because I am more worried that I'm going to get distracted by something. And I will be, I'll be that person who has forgotten to change because I've gotten distracted by whatever. And the docs can come in and I'm either going to be A, fully dressed or be halfway undressed (laughs) and they're going to walk in and I'm going to be like half naked and the other half naked because I don't know why, like I'm, I'm from Vegas. I'm a gynecologist. I don't care. I'm not sensitive about my body at all, but somehow it feels better to me to be in the gown completely before somebody else walks in. Don't want them to see your stomach. They're going to see your vagina. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The vagina I don't care about, but my flab like that, that's got to get covered up. (laughs) <laughs> so, so Carrie, in Las Vegas, when you wear your best underwear, you actually, you didn't say you wore your best underwear, but if you wore your best underwear, be honest, would it be like leopard print or what would it look like? I'm a sparkle girl. Oh yeah. I'm not, I'm not really animal print. Like my favorite <laughs> pair of underwear right now is green with sparklies on the front. 
Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. I won't ask what it says. <laughs> no, no words. No words. Simple. Oh, okay. okay. I'm, I like to think of myself as more elegant. No words. Thank you very okay. much. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I'm going to go there. Okay. So you're from different parts of the country. What are the most popular hairstyles in your part of the country? Uh, oh, oh, that's easy. Hairstyles. Nothing. <laughs> Zero. 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 You know, I feel a little bit of um, personal disgruntlement that I have never seen in person a vajazzled vagina. I have. I've seen, well, I don't know if you consider a tattoo, but it was the most incredible tattoo. I won't, I won't say what it is, but. No, tattoos are different. I'm talking like vajazzling with the jewels in it. I've seen plenty of tattoos and plenty of piercings. That's different. Yeah. I mean, this this tattoo, though, was like, it covered everything. You, I mean, there's no part left untattooed. And the question becomes, wow. who would do that? You know, who who would you choose to do that kind of tattoo on you? Someone who's really good. Yeah, and it was really good, too. It was a really pretty tattoo. Really pretty. What was it? Oh, I can't tell. That'd be that'd be giving way too much information away. But it was it was an interesting tattoo. Interesting. Interesting. But yeah, definitely no hair is the most common. Yeah. Yeah. So everything is not bigger in Texas then. No, no. I mean, you have some, you have some people who don't shave or who shave less or, you know, there's always variety, but, um, generally speaking, if you had to say, what, what do you expect to see? I expect to see no hair. I personally don't care. I, you know, we're, we're doing what we do. We really don't care. It's kind of, you know, people are always like, oh no, I didn't shave my legs or I didn't get my toes manicured. And I'm like, seriously, we don't care. I'm like, I'm looking at the ultrasound screen. We're, we're good. <laughs> yeah. I think even if we're doing a pelvic exam, it's like, you know, our jobs are to think about kind of what are we trying to focus on? What are we trying to look at? What are we worried about? We don't pay attention to, you know, if you've shaved your legs, if you have, you know, hair on your girl parts, you know, what your vagina looks like, what your labia looks like. I, I mean, I don't pay any attention to, to any of that. Do you guys? No. Unless it's diseased, no. Unless there's one giant tattoo there, but otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> so my other question is, based on that, so if you're going to go to a dinner party and you see someone who's been on your table, do you remember what their girl parts look like? No. Nope. No. You don't ha- remember how many rings you've counted? No. Nope. <laughs> no. Like a tree. <laughs> Couldn't remember at the end of the day what the girl parts look like, frankly. I mean, at the risk of sounding like a man, they're kind of all like they look alike. Really? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, in general, yeah. Like two labia, a vagina, a cervix, and you're good. Different colors, different sizes, but basically the same thing. I think the the only awkward part about seeing somebody out in public is I don't ever let on that I know who they are unless they let on that they know who I am. Mm Because that's, that Mm -hmm. is kind of awkward. You don't want them to think that you're not being, that you don't remember them and that you're not being kind, but you also don't want to invade their personal privacy. And particularly if I'm with my spouse, you know, I don't want to go, you know, somebody that he totally has never met before that's, you know, he'll kind of know probably that they're my patient. So I usually kind of pretend like I don't know who they are unless they initiate a conversation with me. Or worse, if they're with someone else and you walk up to them and and the other person is like, knows who you are. Um, as Susan, you referred to this once of mm-hmm. when you were at Mayo yeah. and you were riding an elevator, nobody would ever acknowledge that they knew who you were because you were an <laughs> infertility doc. I mean, yeah. mm-hmm. Emery That's was true. sort of the same way and... 
And that's, and that's how I approach things here. Like I don't acknowledge that I know anybody until they acknowledge me first, because I don't want to give something away that they might not want to be told. Yeah. I'm like, you, you, you and Abby live in big cities. I live in a pretty small city. And yeah. so I run into people all the time. And, yeah. and that's, that's essentially what I do is, you know, I, I don't approach somebody, but I can definitely like, I, I kind of see what their reaction when they see me and, you know, it's, it's either one or the other and neither one hurts. You know, I love talking to my patients if I see them out and about, but I also understand that I'm involved in a very private, special thing in their life. And, um, that, that may not be something that they want to necessarily, you know, address when they're, you know, shopping for deodorant. <laughs> but I love when they bring babies to my office or around public. I love when, when I get to see their baby. That just, you know, that's that's why we do what we do. So I love when people come up and, mm-hmm. you know, talk, show me pictures or show me, or actually have their baby with them. That's that's really a, yeah. pretty cool. The emotional investment I think we put into our work, most people probably don't know or realize, you know, the years and years of schooling Absolutely. and the sacrifices you make, your family makes on holidays to miss special occasions. Um, you know, in my case, I was doing um, an adoption the weekend of my mom's funeral. And that's just something you can't, you can't stop that, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, I mean, but when babies are born, you just have to keep going. And it's such a privilege to help someone and to, you know, fulfill that role for them and to provide that service. But, but yeah, it's, it's tough. I think your field, like our field, people probably don't really realize how much we take it to heart and how mm-hmm. really disappointed we are when our patient doesn't get pregnant or when they have a bad outcome. I mean, after a few of those in a row, it's like you just kind of go home and you're like, I just need to, I need to do something different to get my mind off of this because it can be really upsetting if you let it. Yeah. Hard to, hard to get past that. I was thinking about that because you know, I always tell my clients, I say, I'm not going to give up on you. It's you're that going to be the one that's going to walk away and say, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to put a baby in your arm. And sometimes when you come to me, it might not, you might think it's going to happen one way and it happens another way, but I'm not giving up. And I think, you know, I was thinking about that and I've had two clients who've given up in about a decade, but you don't, you don't forget that you carry them. That's amazing. So, so Charlotte, today we're going to kind of talk with you a little bit about kind of, um, there's certain things that if somebody's considering using a gestational carrier, there, there are some contracts involved and you'll give us a lot more perspective on this, but things to consider about contingency plans, especially considering that we're in a topsy turvy world of 2020 with COVID and all kinds of other crazy stuff going on. This has been quite the year for surrogacy. Um, you know, it's it's so crazy because it just it hit us out of nowhere. And you know, especially if you think about um, all the sacrifices people have made to to get to that point where they've achieved a pregnancy through surrogacy and you're dreaming that it's going to be one way. And then all of a sudden, you know, especially for my international clients, how are you going to get there for the actual birth? Um, that was, that was the really craziest part of this summer. Um, and it's still, you know, it's still unexpected, but we've been able to plan some more. Um, I know um, Carrie and her practice does a lot of international surrogacy, and um, and and for me, 
this summer, it was, you know, not just getting them here, but getting them supplies. So, um, you know, so many, I helped couples this summer and singles from, you know, almost every continent but Africa. And so crossing, not only crossing state line, but actually getting in the country, um, you know, it was, it was very difficult. We had to um, work with different embassies to provide, you know, all kinds of, you know, documents from the medical team to prove that there was a pregnancy. And then, of course, in Texas, we're what we call a pre-birth state, pre-birth order state. So that means that a court has ruled that the parents are the parent for the birth and that their names go directly on to the birth certificate. So what that meant was um, it helped provide the State Department some information about their legal um, responsibilities for being here for the birth. And so, um, I, you know, I give it to these parents, um, you know, they'd ask, you know, well, what have you done in situations like this before? <laughs> no one's ever been in a situation like this. Thank goodness. Um, for me, I was very lucky. I had all of my clients made it here. Um, to the U.S., to the place of birth. I had one couple who um, did not actually make it into the hospital room. And they were in Dallas. Dallas was a little more conservative about their administration policies of who could come in the room and um, who couldn't. That was constantly changing. I mean, by the hour changing. Um, And so for this poor couple, they couldn't be in the room. And as soon as the baby was born, as the parents then they were brought in, which doesn't make sense because they could be there, you know. (laughs) That is crazy. But I think everyone was just trying to really um, figure out what's going on. And and so we've taken those lessons. And, um, you know, I really suggest to people that if you are planning for surrogacy, Ask your ask your attorney. What am I not thinking about that I should? The top one's probably going to be travel. So what are what are some of the things? So travel. What what are some of the other things that you need to talk about for contingencies in a GC contract? So number one is travel. If you're an international couple, I would suggest getting here a month before your baby's born. That's because we don't know what's going to happen as far as when borders are open and closed, and so you want to make sure you're here in time. And so that you have the time um, to make sure you didn't catch anything when you got here, right? Because if, you, if you're if you sick, they're not going to let you in the hospital. Um, and so, and then you can't take care of your baby. So um, getting here early and to make sure you have all those supplies um, and then not just staying here early, it's also leaving. And so, you know, right now it's very hard to get expedited passports through our state department. Um, and so... You know, keeping an open dialogue with your um, with your home country is very important because you're probably going to be using a passport to leave that's not the, your U.S. passport. It's your home country's passport. So they'll probably issue one. Oh, that's different than usual. Yes. That's a big change. Yeah. So what if, what if you're, Sharna, what if you're going overseas? I don't know how many people you deal with that are adopting or that are using a surrogate overseas. Is Does that pretty much everything you said hold true. I, I read a really compelling story, I think, in the um, in Wall Street Journal, and they were, they were talking about how a couple had to walk across the border in some country to get their, to get their child. And, and just, I think there were like 100 babies 
internationally that were born and their parents actually couldn't get there. I would never recommend going outside of the U.S. for surrogacy. Really? Um, it was a hot mess beforehand. Really? Okay. But now it's even worse. <laughs> you know, I, I would say that two other places that people were really going through for surrogacy if they could not afford it in the U.S. because the, the U.S. is the gold standard gotcha. um, for ethics, for having, um, you know, really good procedures, um, but we're more expensive. And so people would go to Canada, which I, right now I'm inundated with calls from people who are in Canada who um, their embryos are here and they, you know, they had a Canadian surrogate and that did not work out. So, you know, they're back. They've lost, you know, years and so much money, which is so disheartening because it's just not fair. Um, and then the other one is um, Ukraine. Is the Canadian uh, set of issues that you're seeing primarily because their Canadian surrogates can't get across the border or because they aren't willing to quarantine for the two weeks after or because the intended parents can't get into Canada to get the babies afterwards or what, what set of issues are you more commonly seeing? So, um, so all of those things, it's harder to find uh, gestational surrogates right now. You know, mm -hmm. it takes a very special woman to carry someone else's child on their behalf. It's truly it a takes, gift. It is. It's an amazing gift, but you know, it's even more challenging to find someone who's willing to do that during a pandemic. Oh yeah, that's hadn't thought about that. Yeah, <laughs> you know all the all the great you know char characteristics that you look for in a gestational surrogate, like um, you know recent births. So you're looking for someone who has young kids. Well, those moms are working with their own kids right now to do re remote learning. And so oh, yeah. they have so much more stressors on them that it's harder to find those candidates. Um, and I would say that those candidates are looking much more carefully at intended parents and matching and deciding on who they'll match with based on where they live. So, you know, if they are an international intended parent, are they willing to be here that month beforehand? Mm. Um, you know, and looking at what happened this summer, you know, will it happen again next summer? And, and looking at that. So Sharna, I have a question for you. And sorry if this is a personal question, but I feel like we know each other pretty well now because you've asked me you sure. know, questions about, you know, things that most people don't ask. So I figure we can ask personal questions. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yes. So, um, you know, people always ask us this question. They probably always ask you this question. So how much does it cost to have a gestational carrier? Because I mean, obviously you you touched upon that. That's a big issue for patients. And one of the reasons why, or the, probably the number one reason why they go out of country to do that. So how much does it really cost? Well, this is what I call the Texas advantage. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have that in Tennessee, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it really depends on, on the state. And so, you know, here in Texas, you're looking at, anywhere from 100 to 125,000 really depending on the situation so if you're using an agent um, those costs can vary depending on the cost of, of fees that come from your agency um, and also is this someone that you matched with independently so is this you know a sister um, how how is compensation working out as far as that in terms of matching through an agency and maybe there's a different compensation set up. So, you know, Texas, we are a lower cost of living state. And so it is more affordable 
for couples to have a surrogate who lives in Texas. So often I have clients who they're using surrogacy clinics in other states. Mm. That's, that's very, very common, but they've purposely sought out a surrogate in Texas because they've maybe saved tens and thousands of dollars versus going to California. Mm -hmm. We see the same, same thing. So when you see, you know, us being in Nevada, it's a, it's a surrogacy friendly state for the same reason. There's no state tax. It's an easier, more affordable state. Some of the hospitals are, have surrogate delivery programs set up because we do enough of it here where there's no guessing if, if the insurance, for whatever reason, doesn't cover the cost of the hospitalization, you know what it is ahead of time. It's, you know, X amount at this hospital for a vaginal delivery and X amount for a C-section. And, and so the state that you deliver, deliver in makes a huge difference and where the surrogates live in makes a huge difference. So Sharna, what do you tell patients when they ask you, should I use a surrogacy agency or should I not? What, what is your response to that? Oh, use an agency. Even if you have someone who you think is a good candidate, who maybe is a family member or a friend, have an agency vet them out. Because so often people will spend so much time or money on someone who they think is maybe a good candidate, and then it, it falls apart. So this is really one place where you don't want to cut corners. I'm all for buying generic everything else, but you know, invest that money to make sure your surrogate is screened because this is your baby, someone who's going to be carrying your baby. Yeah. One thing I would say is we do a lot of screening of the surrogates ourselves. If, if somebody comes to us I and mean, we can do, because I would agree with you, sometimes they haven't had infectious disease testing. They haven't had a psychological assessment, but some physicians can practices, not all physicians practices can do that. But typically we like to do that for our patients. And I think we've had some good good results with surrogacy agencies, but we've also had some not so good uh, agencies that we've worked with. And it's kind of, I think as even as a physician, it's hard to figure out which ones are the good ones and which ones are not. Well, that's one reason why it's really great to engage an attorney, you know, from the outset. I have physicians who send intended parents to me before they send them to an agency because I can tell them, here's some great agencies to work with. And then once they start to talk to that agency, I tell them, get a gut feel for if you feel comfortable with them. And then once they present their contract to you, let's go over it. I can review this for you and I can negotiate the terms of the contract, which will end up saving you money in case things don't work out and protect you. So, you know, it's your doctor is great at it, presenting those resources to you. And I know that people don't necessarily want to talk to a lawyer, but we're happy to help. I was going to say the other component of that is knowing the quality of surrogates that we get from different agencies can vary pretty widely. And so it's helpful to know, okay, what, what criteria does your clinic have for the surrogates that they'll accept? And when they get a surrogate from that agency, usually there's a preliminary review process. How many do they have to reject before they'll get somebody that they'll accept? Because that's very telling too, because if, if you have an agency that sends you a bunch of people that really probably aren't great candidates for being surrogates, then that, that's something to consider as well. And so your clinic usually knows that, will oftentimes know that as well. Like, 
when they're doing a bunch of surrogacy. And not only that, I can read agencies. You know, I have the contact. So someone could spend months going through, you know, agencies to determine which one they're going to use, where I can just send off some communications to some of my favorite agencies. Hey, who has available surrogates right now? Can I see their profiles? You know, whereas otherwise someone's going to go wait and align for months and months and months, wait to be matched with a surrogate, you know, six months to a year. Um, and during that time, I could have helped facilitate the process. So, so say somebody doesn't have you as a resource or doesn't have, you know, a fertility practice that they've connected with yet. If you were out there looking, you know, novice, didn't know anything about it. What are some things that you would tell patients that they need to look for in a surrogate and look for in an agency if they're kind of on their own? Definitely. um, If they are an agency, see how many cases um, that they do a year. And I I say that not just because you want someone maybe who's done a a bulk, but depending on your practice, what kind of practice you're looking for. So it's, it's similar to when you look for a doctor. Do you want someone who's going to give you more individualized attention or do you want, do you feel more comfortable with having um, a more corporate feel? Um, you know, it can go either way for, for people. Um, I think there's a large, you know, personality um, match issue there. Um, you know, uh, another thing is... Um, what organizations do they belong to? Uh, are they active with um, ASRM? Uh, you know, that's that's a huge one because you'll see, you know, these international agencies who, you know, I don't know who they are. No one necessarily knows <laughs> who they are um, that, because that's a scary thing. Anyone can anyone can start an agency. Right. There's there's no regulations in terms of. Um, in terms of starting one. Kind of circling back to like those contingencies. What what are what are other than travel? What what are some things that we need to think about or our patients need to think about when they're when they're kind of diving into this? Like what are things that you have to think about? So one more quick travel one is um, you know, if you are here in the States, do you want to have a surrogate who's close to you? Because if you want to have a, you know, a very close relationship and be present physically during the journey, you probably want to have a surrogate who's um, within your state, who, who's in within um, driving distance. Um, something I've, I'm seeing a lot too is, you know, whereas before people would say everything has to go through this one clinic, now they're moving their embryos so they don't want their, their surrogate necessarily to travel. So um, that's something else that, that I've seen. Um, definitely as far as COVID, you want to match with someone who has like-minded views. So talking about things like if a vaccination becomes available, are we on the same page as far as um, if you're going to have this vaccine um, social distancing. So you don't want to match with someone who, you know, if you, if quarantining is very important to you, someone who's much more of a social butterfly, who's um, out there in public, you know, public transportation, would you feel comfortable with your surrogate using public transportation? I wouldn't have ever even thought about public transportations. Yeah. Yeah. I'd never even thought about that. That's great. Well, that's what that's what they hire you for. <laughs> I job to think of all those things that yeah. you don't have to worry Worst about. Worst case scenario, right? <laughs> um, you know, the other, 
other thing is, you know, as far as employment. So does your surrogate work if she loses her job? Um, do you feel comfortable with her, you know, having any other kind of job? Are these things that you can plan and put into your contract really to not only protect your relationship, but the real risks of contracting COVID? Because there's so much we just don't know right now. How how do you how do you have those conversations about like you can use public transportation or you can't? Like, like I mean. I would have never been a good gestational carrier. I wasn't a good pregnant <laughs> person. So, I mean, of course, gestational carriers are a very like unique breed and, and it's amazing what these people do. And they obviously have like a special place in their heart. But some of these things are like, it's so confining having, I mean, from my perspective, if somebody was like, oh, you have to do this, you can't do this. Yeah, that's that, would, scary. that would be hard to live with those limitations, I think. How do you write that into a contract? Yeah. Not just public transportation, but kind of the common sense things that go along with it. And how do you how do you put the teeth into that? How do you make that enforceable? And yeah, and what what happens? Yeah, what happens if they still use public transportation? You don't want them to. I mean, uh, you know, and that's why it's important for me as an attorney. My practice is very small. I spend a lot of time getting to know my clients so that we can talk through those things. When I when I speak with them, I want to know tell me about your life. How many kids do you have? What's your job? What do you do for fun? Knowing all of these things and getting a sense for who they are, I can see the risks involved. Because, you know, just as your job is to diagnose um, you know, the medical risks, my, that's, you know, that's my job to look out for those legal risks and making sure um, that you have that you know, good match. And that's part of where I think having an agency is so important because they're really that bridge to help you talk through those things. Because not every every attorney is going to necessarily spend so much time with their clients, right? That's why we've seen so many horror stories about these babies who are born here and their parents can't get here. You know, a lot of those parents, I think, maybe were in situations where they didn't have attorneys like myself who were breathing down their neck. You better get over here. <laughs> I'll help <laughs> you find, you know, I'll help you arrange your travel. We need to make sure you're here. Um, so, you know, having an agency, that's really their value, too, because they can they can discuss all those things. One last thing that I was going to ask you, and you sort of touched upon this earlier, our patients probably don't realize or may not realize, but there's differences from state to state. Because you mentioned that Texas is a friendly state for surrogacy. And and I think, I guess it's important to point out that there's some differences among the states, correct? Yes, definitely. Um, and so I, I touched on a, a pre-birth order state. So um, in general, there are two kinds of states when we talk about surrogacy-friendly state, the pre-birth order states and the post-birth order states. So Texas being a pre-birth order state, um, we we take the um, legal documents to court and um, we get a court order from the judge that says that the intended parents are the legal parents. Their names do go on the birth certificate. And so that process at the hospital is very, very smooth um, because they've already established this right versus some states where post-birth order um, where you get that order after the baby is born. And how do you find that out? How do you figure out if your state is a pre-birth order or post-birth order state? I would suggest contacting an attorney. 
because even within a state, different different counties or cities, things might be different. So I'm here in San Antonio and we are a very um, gay-friendly city. We do more same-sex adoptions than anywhere in the nation, which I know surprises a lot of people. Um, and we grant more and different kinds of pre-birth orders than other cities or counties. And so all of that really just varies. So I would suggest, you know, talking to an attorney and, and getting a feel for what what is the best option for you. And usually a good start at that is asking your doctor. So there are also states out there that are just not surrogacy friendly at all, correct? Yes. Yes. What, what, can you mention some of those? <laughs> Uh, so the Great Lakes state, <laughs> um, uh, you know, Louisiana, um, Oklahoma can be a, a trickier state. Um, you know, usually when when you're going through this process and you're looking at that, your doctor will be able to provide some preliminary information to to give you a recommendation uh, of an attorney who can help you decide which state to work with. And to be clear, it depends on where your surrogate is going to deliver, correct? Not necessarily where you live, but where she's going to deliver, correct? It can be both. So oh, okay. I, I know it gets even, even really confusing. more confusing. <laughs> so, you know, in Texas, we, um, we will provide pre-birth orders uh, if the intended parents are from Texas or if the surrogate is from Texas. Oh, that's nice. So Arizona is a tricky one where Arizona will honor the pre-birth orders from other states, but not necessarily always um, execute orders themselves. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's millions of layers of trickiness. Um, but that's why it's so important to have someone who actually has real life experience, a lot of it, with this area. Because when I have seen seen things go very badly, it's a lot of times when someone engages an attorney who's a family friend because they want to save some money mm-hmm. or you know, they say, I really want to work with this person. They are an estate planning attorney that I use. And that's where crack hits the fan. It'd be like a thoracic surgeon doing your gynecology visit, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, because let's just say you're doing um, an embryo donation contract, right? And it's an estate planning attorney from another state. And I've had this happen before. And um, that attorney says, why do my clients who are donating these embryos, why do they have to go through psych? They, they don't want to do that. And you can try to explain everything, but if they don't, if they don't have that background, they can't convey that to, to their clients. And they, they just, I mean, they're a lot of times not trying to do anything wrong. They don't have malintent. They just don't have the tools to be able to do the job the best is what these, these particular patients need. Exactly. So kind of in closing, Sharna, if you were to give like an overall piece of advice for somebody who is about to go down the surrogacy journey in the next year or two, what other than get a fantastic attorney, (laughs) (laughs) what, what, what would be your um, best advice to those people? I think one of the most interesting parts of my job is I get to see how people are making decisions regarding COVID and third party reproduction. And one of the most interesting things that I've seen is that my clients who are doctors and who are on the front lines, it's not stopping them. 
So, you know, some, some, some people might ask me, oh, is, is everything slow for you right now? Are people deciding that they, that they want to stop with this process or wait? No, I think that, you know, really this has brought to light the, really the sacred goal of parenthood is even more important. And, um, and, you know, in these, in my client perspective, the, um, the risk don't outweigh the benefits. They're moving forward. That's fantastic. We love to keep hope out there in the world. Yes. Thank you so much for talking with us, Sharna. Thank you so much for your time. Really interesting. You brought up some really interesting points. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And And I hope you get your bejazzle. (laughs) (laughs) Not get it. See it. (laughs) Come on, Carrie. (laughs) So on that note, to our audience, thank you so much for listening. And be sure to tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also visit us at fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit any specific questions you have about infertility or apparently anything else that you might want to know because we're game for anything. (laughs) All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously in our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. The more embarrassing, the better. All right. We'll talk with you guys later. See you on the next episode. Bye. 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 Bye.